Hello and welcome to the Switzer TV property. I'm Peter Switzer. This goes out every Thursday night on our YouTube channel. Just go to Switzer Financial Group and you'll find the program there. And make sure you tell as many people as you can. Now in tonight's program, I'm going to look at the house price rebound first and then we'll talk to the head of the FBAA. He's kind of in charge of the mortgage brokers and finance brokers of Australia to see what he's seeing about this house price rebound. Is it believable? And then we'll talk to a high-end developer, Charles Mellick from the Fortis Group, to see what he's seeing right now. And I'm gonna ask him whether foreigners are starting to come back into the market for our high-end apartments. But before that, I just wanna take you through what I'm seeing when it comes to this house price rebound and what I expect to happen in 2020. Well, the run of economic data this week has been disappointing and suggests that the Reserve Bank will be cutting interest rates again in February or Treasurer Josh Frydenberg will have to change his mind and opt for tax cuts or some other fiscal stimulus to avoid unemployment heading higher. Now, nothing I've seen this week, business confidence, business conditions, consumer confidence, points to an uptrend is taking hold. It looks more like the same relative negative readings on the economy that would not lead to champagne cork popping in the Reserve Bank's Martin Place headquarters or in Treasury in the nation's capital. The strong stock market this year, up about 26% when you add in dividends, and the rebounding house prices are the only two pluses that help optimists. Market experts always try to say that a stock market guesses the economic future six to nine months in advance, and rising house prices are often a prelude to a spending boom as homeowners feel richer and their homes, as their homes become actually more valuable. So at least for a year or so before an inevitable recession comes along, this recent house price surge could delay the day of reckoning the doomsters are praying for. As most of, us, most of you know, I prefer optimism. I have to confess that I'm hot wide for it, but as an economist with a strong economic history background, I know optimistic outcomes beat pessimistic ones most of the time. We've had 29 years without a recession, stock markets rise about 10% per annum over 10 years, despite two or three years in that 10 that could be negative and even scary. Charts on home prices show being a holder of property is, is actually rewarding. Homeownership is close to 70% here in Australia, while in the UK it's 63%, the USA 64%, Canada 63%, and Germany 51%. Melbourne keeps hearing it's one of the most livable cities in the world, and if we could overcome these damn droughts and bushfires, I'd argue Aussie country life would compare to others worldwide very favourably. Though I do think the Poms are luckier with no killer spiders or brown snakes. Yep, I know their weather offsets a lot of their advantages. Now, in 2017, the OECD ranked us 10th in the world for average wages, better than Canada, Germany, France, the UK, Sweden, Finland, and Japan. But interestingly, not better than the USA. So despite doomsters believing the average Aussie is getting screwed, there are a lot of facts out there that suggest they're doing okay. But the question is, can you believe the house price comeback? Because if it's not real, then the feeling of being wealthy or wealthier won't seep through in 2020 and our economy won't improve. And remember, my objectivity is more important than my optimistic inclination. So if I think a recession is coming next year, I'll tell you. 
Right now, I'm leaning to we will dodge the recession bullet scenario. But if Donald Trump screws up with his trade deal, the Poms vote for uh, greater Brexit slash EU problems, impeachment proceedings for Donald Trump surprise or some other geopolitical crisis comes along in places like China or the Middle East, then we could trip into recession. My investments say I'm betting against the worst case scenario, but I am watching everything very closely. So what do we know about the house price swing back? Guests I've interviewed on tonight's Switzer TV show are experienced property people and they are surprised that I asked the question, is the housing rebound for real? Mortgage brokers are busier than they were from mid-2017 to mid-2019 when house prices fell around 15% or more in Sydney and Melbourne. Now, this was a lot better than the 40% predicted by doomsday merchants and not one has said that the experts, I believe, experienced economists and property stats people were more right than them. They're hanging on waiting for the day of reckoning. But they have to understand when you're in the forecasting business, you can't just say the day of reckoning is nigh. You see, we all know that. It's picking when it actually happens that makes you a good or bad forecaster. When I said the S&P ASX 200 index might go close to 7,000 this year, earlier in the year, lots of critics gave me a terrorising tweeting. I didn't think I'd forget that, but Paul Rickard in our Switzer podcast yesterday actually reminded me of my pretty good call. I'm happy my optimism and analysis has been on the money. And if those who believe me simply played an ETF for the index, they could be 26% richer today. Buyers of real estate when house prices were falling from mid-2017 to mid-2019 now will be sitting on a pretty good short-term gain on the house prices. Real estate agents in many sought-after areas think a lot of the losses that we have seen uh, over that period of time have now been regained, which actually even surprises me. That said, I will warn all and sundry that the next recession when it comes, house prices will fall and the severity of the recession and the rise in the jobless rate will be critical to how much house prices will fall by. However, I have to say, when unemployment topped 10% in the 1990-91 recession, house prices didn't dive too much as a chart above will show. Have a look at that. Now here's the latest news on house prices summed up. The ABS says home prices rose 2.4%, and that's the biggest lift in two and a half years, in the September quarter to stand at 3.7% lower over the year. The value of dwellings in Australia in the September quarter was 0.1% higher than a year ago. The CoreLogic Home Value Index of national home prices rose by 1.7% in November, the biggest increase since October 2003, and capital city home prices rose by 2%, also the biggest lift in 16 years. Regional home prices rose by 0.5% in the month. Sydney home prices lifted by 2.7% in November, and that's the biggest monthly increase since October 1988. And according to Combank's chief economist Michael Blythe, CBA's household spending intentions survey found that after a poor September, there was a small pickup in retail spending intentions data in October, but there was a sharp upspring in home buying intentions, and if that continues, intentions are now approaching record highs seen in early 2017. The data makes you think that the house price recovery could help the economy in 2020, but we need to see building react and start happening ASAP. 
The latest data on residential building showed that it formed by 3.1% in the September quarter, and now that's the fifth straight decline. Work done was down 10.6% over the year, and that's the biggest annual fall in 18 years. Alterations and additions fell by 0.1% in the quarter, to be down 8.2% over the year. However, these are for the months July, August and September, and we're now in December. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed that things are starting to improve. I'd love to see dwelling approvals tell me a positive story, but the last two readings were conflicting. This is what Trading Economics saw, and I quote, the number of dwellings approved in Australia unexpectedly declined by 8.1% per month in October 2019, after a downwardly revised 7.3% gain in the previous month and, and missing market expectations of a 0.4% rise. So what they're basically saying is there was a, a, a fall and the experts were expecting a rise. But the month before, there was a rise. So it's kind of 50-50 at this point in time. So when you put it all together, I'd love to say that home building is on a rebound, but would be optimism trumping objectivity. More homes would actually help hose down the price rises, but I'm only seeing anecdotal evidence that building could be improving. And unfortunately, it's not hard enough data to make me really believe that any big call is believable at this point in time. All I can say is go optimism, but it might need some help from Josh Frydenberg with a bit of fiscal stimulation. One group of people who would know what's going on in the property market would be mortgage brokers. And so I'm going to talk to Peter White, who is the managing director of the FBAA, which actually puts together mortgage brokers and finance brokers of Australia. Thanks for joining us, Pete. Thanks, Pete. Pleasure to be here. Uh, I've said in my intro that mortgage brokers have a pretty good handle on what's going on in the property market. Mm. Is business picking up? Across the country, generally, uh, business is pretty good. Yeah. Um, Perth is still a bit flat. I think it's going to take a while for it to come good. Mm. But uh, pretty much in most of the metro cities and the outlying suburbs, uh, we know that uh, mortgage brokers are actually doing a lot of business. Mm. So pretty fluid market at the moment. Was it cooked for a couple of years? Um, in different markets it was. Yeah. It fell really badly flat as we hit uh, rural commissions and federal elections. Yeah. But it's come out the gates pretty strong. Okay. Um you mentioned the Royal Commission. Mm. Um, you guys were given a, a, a real going over. Was it unjustified? Yeah, it was a real bump steer. I mean, it was a Royal Commission into misconduct mm. uh, in the financial services super and so on. It wasn't into us. Mm. Yeah, we got dragged into it. Um, we've come out okay, though. Yeah. Um, and I think these regulatory reviews times are quite good. At the time, we thought, you know, doom and gloom, this yeah. is ridiculous, and we're up in arms. Mm. But, um, you know, now we sit back and we're looking at best interest duties coming on board and... Uh, although there's some challenges within the way the draft bill has been proposed, we're working with Treasury at the moment on that, and I think that will come out fine. And at the end of the day, brokers are going to be in a great space. They're going to be able to turn around and say, look, by law, we act in the best interest of the client. We put yeah. your interest first. Yeah. Your bank doesn't. Yeah. So, yeah, it'll work out okay. Uh, do some people have the, the wrong idea that because you're compensated by the banks, there's mm. something wrong with that? Oh, look, some people do. Um, you've got around 60% of the market uses a mortgage broker anyhow. Yeah. So like the, you know, the, the majority of people are fine with it. I think people think that um, because they're getting a commission, it's increasing costs somewhere, yeah. and it's not. Yeah. So whether the bank uses a broker 
although uses a branch network, they've still got the cost of distribution. It costs no more. In actual fact, uh, even the Prime Minister said it the other month, I was fortunate to spend some time with him, that mortgage brokers are the original disruptors. Mm. They create a competition in the marketplace mm. and they keep the pressure on mm. to ensure competition stays. Yeah. Um, so everyone's won by it. Yeah, without a doubt. All right, now, um, you talked about the best interest duty. Mm. Tell us about that. So a part of the recommendation from the Royal Commission, 1.6 I think it is, or 4, mm. which is what it was, um, that we would introduce the best interest duty. The initial concern around that was you can't take what's sitting in financial planning and just image it across. It mm. doesn't work that way. They're different animals, different beasts. Mm. Um, and uh, a draft bill has been put before the House. It's gone through a second reading, but it's being stopped at that point. It'll be put back on the table when they come back with some amendments. Um, we've got to make sure that this bill actually achieves what it's trying to achieve. Mm. So, you know, one of the challenges we saw with Treasury when they wrote it was saying that um, the bill is applied to mortgage brokers. Well, the test shouldn't be against the business, you should be against the activity. If I say it's just against mortgage brokers, and I turn and say, well, I'm a, com a commercial mortgage broker, doesn't apply to me, so I can do a home loan and not act in the best interest of the client. Mm. Doesn't make sense. Yeah. So activity is against the home loan, yeah. and there's a whole host of things when bundling happens. And uh, it will be at the point of time when you apply for a loan. Obviously, what happens after that mm. uh, is outside the broker's hand. And it just simply means that you put the borrower's interest in ahead of your, ahead yeah. of your own. Yeah. And uh, that cuts across a whole lot of things, whether yeah. it be commission-related, yeah. uh, whether it be product-related, understanding the client really, really well to ensure so, that their interests are met. So a mortgage broker would get into trouble if, for example, they put a client into a, a higher interest loan because they got a high commission from the lender. If that was the, if that was the cause and effect, most certainly. Mm. Um, higher rates is not always the problem. No. But if you're doing it to get a higher commission, that's a real problem. Yeah. And most so, and fines are up uh, over a million bucks. So. Yeah. And, and in many ways, I've been a great advocate of mortgage brokers mm. because the banks invariably don't give their lower customers the best rates. Mm. If someone who's able to survey all the rates in the market, like a mortgage broker, they can yeah. say, well, your bank's charging you four and a half, but I can get you 2.9. Exactly. Yeah. And the brokers are going to keep reviewing facilities. And they do that anyhow, but yeah. there'll be more diligence about reviewing things as we okay. go forward. Um, one of the problems, you know, during the time when Sydney and Melbourne's house prices were falling, and clearly mm. it would have been harder for mortgage brokers, was the bank's credit policy. The, the way they were reviewing the borrowers was draconian. Has yes. that improved? It has. Uh, it was tightening, tightening. And the Federal Treasurer stepped in and said, we've got to change how you assess things. Mm. And what was happening was rates were down around 4% and then falling down to 35 and a halves at the mm. time. But the assessment rate when you went for a loan was around 7.5% or more. Right. And so you became a prisoner. You know, you're paying your mortgage on time, you're trying to get to a cheaper rate, but with the servicing rate so high, you couldn't. So that's changed now. Mm. So that's all been put down. So made the market more fluid, but also more realistic. Mm. But are banks still a lot more um, forensic in assessing a customer than before the Royal Commission? Yeah, most certainly. Uh, the due diligence on discretionary spending and so on is significant. Mm. Um, again, I feel it's one of those things where they've over-tightened the nut and with a bit of time that'll come back a little bit. But I guess it's all about the discovery of the thing that actually came out in the Royal Commission was a fracture of trust by not disclosing what the truth was. Mm. So the, the investigation is all about what's the truth. Mm. Uh, but there's got to be some rationale within all that and uh, some understandings that just because you spend uh, $100 a week on poker machines today doesn't mean you can't change that habit if you're motiv motivated yeah. to. And also uh, you still might be able to 
make, make your mortgage repayments, yeah. even with that hundred dollars. Yeah, problem. exactly right. Um, I guess the the bottom line is then um, how how um, many mortgage brokers, in percentage terms, were in trouble with regulators before the Royal Commission on an annual basis. Um, I guess the only measure I can bring to that is what um, AFCA, the Ombudsman, sees, mm. and it's about 0.1%. There's a few hundred of them. Yeah. So vast, vast minority cases that they see mm. um, involve mortgage brokers. And it generally wound up any debate was not around commissions or anything, it was around product suitability. Mm. Um, and that could have been a lender issue as well. But it's 0.1% okay. with the Ombudsman. And, and what about satisfaction? about mortgage value. I'm sure you guys yeah. do those sorts oh, of things. Oh, certainly, yeah. We, we did a survey uh, in the last 12 months right. and it was up over 95%. Yeah. So it's very, very strong. And, uh, it's right. Okay, well, so Pete, what are the, the big issues that you want to talk about that I, I haven't got to so far? Because from my point of view, I want to know how the property market's going. It seems mm. to me that mortgage brokers and banks aren't going to get in the way of people getting into homes. Yeah, from a, a property point of view, they, brokers won't get in the way. In actual fact, brokers will help you close sales. Mm. Uh, they're all the right reasons to ensure that the loans get through and are, are made uh, in a very suitable fashion for the borrower mm. and uh, that they're structured properly from the outset. You're not going to get that from your bank because okay. the broker's got that diversification. Yeah. So that will help and I believe will help stimulate the property market and also probably increase brokers' market share. We, we write somewhere around 55 to 60% of all loans go through brokers. Mm. I can see that increasing because you know, I, I know when I first started doing it back in the early 90s, I was uh, doing uh, interviews at one o'clock in the morning. Mm. So there's a mobile network out there that are out to help the real estate agents, the property market, mm. to make sure these transactions go through in a timely manner. Okay, is there any other big issue that yeah, the people out there need to be aware of? No, I think uh, we're through all the big issues. Best interest duty is a great upside mm -hmm. for everyone. Uh, it will play out from uh, February to maybe early March, and uh, we keep going stronger and bigger than before. Pete, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Pete. That's Peter White, Managing Director of the FBAA. Charles, thanks for joining us. Yeah, good to be here, Peter. All right, so um, let's talk about sales for the off-the-plan apartments. Yep. And they have lifted in the September quarter. Now, some economists think that the, the worst is over for the segment. Mm. You're right in this segment. What do you think? Yeah, um, well, probably the worst is over. We're seeing sales uh, very strong over the last three to four months. Mm. Um, it has been traditionally slow in 2018 after a boom from 16 and 17. But... Yeah, our sales have, been, have picked up significantly. We're seeing two to three sales a month, which mm. relates to about 10 million bucks a month. Okay. So it's pretty good. And, you know, looking at the the, the falling away of, of off the um, planned sales and, and the pickup, does it tend to be the quality of the product that determines the more likelihood that you'll be able to get a sale? Yeah, well... That's one thing. I suppose uh, one of the biggest things is who the developer is. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been a great emphasis on, you know, the, what's been happening in the marketplace with, you know, the cladding issues and mm. defects. And, and people are being far more educated about working out who the developer is, what's their background, what have they developed before. And, and that's, I, th I think, where we've got a great advantage. We have a fairly good name in, in the market in both Melbourne and Sydney. And, it's reflecting in sales. So you, you've got a development at uh, 232 Wattle Tree, 
uh, in Malvern. Malvern, yeah. yeah. How's that gone? It's gone very well, uh, albeit a lot of it was sold in mid-17 in the boom. Mm. Um, we still had maybe five or six sales left, but they trickled across over the last six months and that's been completely sold out prior to completion. Mm. We had a, um, interestingly, we had an open day a couple of Saturdays ago. We had, and we invited other developers and we invited council and, and you know, locals, as well as the buyers for that development and other developments we were doing. And, we had about 150 to 180 people turn up and it was a huge success. And mm. off the back of that, we, we've been selling other properties in our other developments in Malvern and Glen Iris based on the quality there. Mm. Yeah. Do off the plan sales tend to follow the trend that you might see with house and land packages? No, it's, it's, fair, it's, it's much different. So. Um, off the off the off the plan sales, you know, you have investors, you have downsizers, you have um, uh, uh, other different people trying to buy. Where house and land packages are traditionally, you know, communities which are, I suppose, for younger people trying to enter into the market. But it's it's a very different market, hmm. one in which we don't play in. Okay. Um, so, what are the benefits you, do you think hmm. of buying off the plan? Well. There's a, there's a couple of great benefits. Uh, the ability to customise your own home. Um, we did that in Melbourne. It probably doesn't happen that much in Sydney, but um, you know, many purchasers that buy our apartments want different kitchen colours, different, you know, an additional powder room, etc. And we have no issue customising that and building that in. Hmm. Um, and then there's the ability to, to, you know, there's sometimes growth left in these apartment blocks so, you know, if, it's, if they're purchasing 18 months out, you know, you would hope there's, there's a bit of growth there for them. But a lot of the, our buyers are also cash buyers, so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a growth probably isn't that important to them. Mm. Um, okay, so they're the, the pluses. What do people have to be you know, mindful of mm. when they're, they're tr you know, trying to buy off the plan? Um, I suppose they've got to be mindful of who the developer is. Um, the ability to, to complete, the ability to start and complete, the ability to, a lot of these developers require pre-sales mm. um, to get things started. So if you're, you know, one of the first to buy off the plan, you could be waiting, you know, a year or two before the developer gets enough pre-sales before their funding okay. kicks in. So they're short of capital and they're using the pre-sales to make the thing happen. Yeah. And you're saying experienced developers are, are often in that sort of situation. Experienced developers, uh, no, well, it depends on. That's no, so what I meant. Inexperienced developers. Yeah, inexperienced yeah. developers. Yeah, yeah correct. Yeah. And, and banks aren't extending lines of credit to these mm -hmm. guys because because they either they don't want to, or the developments are so fine in terms of margin, mm -hmm. they have to kick in plenty of equity or get 120% pre-sale requirements. Mm. So, so in many ways, and you, you need to have a good relationship with your bank as well when you're playing at something like that. Yeah, you do. I mean, we're a little bit different. We we've got our own fund, Palace Capital, so. Mm -hmm. We have the ability to start these projects without any pre-sales, based mm. on uh, the fact that um, you know it's, a, it's our cash as such, yeah. and um, we look at an LVR position at the other end, mm. which is usually generally low. So, Charles, what's the the typical buyer of an off the the plan apartment for you guys? The the profile, mm. uh, I suppose, uh, generally they're over sixty. It's a very general rule, but they, they're generally over 60 and they, uh, they're, they're downsized, traditional downsizes where their kids have left mm. and it's just the, the mum and dad mm. 
and they are coming from a home in, say, Turak worth about five or six million, and they're falling back into an apartment worth two or three million. Mm. Um, easy maintenance. A lot of these people like to travel, so and, and they're considered buyers, so they understand what they're buying now. Mm. I mean, there's there's a lot of competition in in areas like you know Double Bay, Rose Bay, Turak, South Yarra, mm. um, and they they've generally seen three or four different properties. Mm and looked at those very carefully before they get to ours. Yeah. And are they, are they looking for services in close proximity to the apartments, yeah, you know, like hairdressers and pharmacies and coffee shops and stuff like that? Yeah, very much so. And usually they like, like it to be on a flat piece of land so mm. they can, it's an easy three or four hundred metre walk mm. of the, uh, the apartment block. Yeah. What about foreign buyers? They were pretty big four or five years ago. Um, That's APRA made a lot harder. Have you seen... A trickle of them coming back? No, hmm. not well. We've had a couple of, or not a couple. We've had a few inquiries from Hong Kong in recent. <laughs> well, I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they haven't converted to sales and hmm. such. So, 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 where do you see the the upcoming opportunities for Fortis? Well, currently we're, we're probably developing uh, around fifteen sites, ten of which are downsizes. So we are really pushing our brand. We've got three full-time girls doing marketing and we're delivering, we're hoping to deliver, to deliver about eight sites a year. Mm. Um, not many developers in our space can do that. The ability to do that with the fund makes it a hell of a lot easier. Mm. So while, while we have that ability, we're, we're pushing that through. Right. That's what we're trying to do. And we're, we're delivering end values of 30 to 40 million, we'll probably bring that up to 50 to 60 million. Mm. So that, that equates to you know, anywhere between two to $400 million a year. Yeah. I guess the downsizes trend is not only the fact that people are living in big houses and their kids have finally left home, thank God for that. Yeah. But also the fact is that people need to get money to put in their super to make their retirement <coughs> more comfortable and, and their investment in property has been a good investment. Yeah, correct. Mm. correct. All right, so where are you looking to build the next Fortis Group properties? We're looking at sites in um, one, one in Bellevue Hill, mm. we're looking at another one in South Yarra, and we're looking at areas like Cronulla, Cronulla and Avalon, mm. different areas in very close proximity to shops and which we covered earlier, but mm. yeah, we're not we're not affixed to the Melbourne Eastern Suburbs and, and Sydney Eastern Suburbs, mm. we're looking at... You've never ventured to Queensland? <clears throat> um, no. Oh, would, would I? Yes, but mm. we haven't at this stage. If you've got the right site. Yeah. Now, and, and what uh, it seems to me is that you... You're pursuing a certain demographic. Yeah. A has the money. They're pretty well informed sort of investors when it comes to these sort of properties. Correct. And uh, you're, sh you're shooting for the high end. That's exactly right. Great. Charles, nice to meet you. Thank you. That's Charles Mellick from Fortis and Palace Capital.